Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. Welcome to another Prehistory Guys interview, introducing you to archaeologists and historians all too often hidden behind the scenes and finding out what they're up to while the world isn't watching. Today we're talking with Dr Lee Bray, lead archaeologist for the Dartmoor National Park in Devon, southwest England. Yeah, Lee started out in geology before making the move into archaeology and on to Exeter University where he gained his doctorate in Romano-British iron production on Exmoor. Now, Dartmoor is a special place for us, so mm. we're very much looking forward to this conversation with Dr Bray, who is possibly, in our humble opinion, <laughs> the best <laughs> job that there may be in archaeology. <laughs> However, before we begin, don't forget that if you're interested in our interviews and other films and broadcasts, you can find much more content on our Patreon campaign page at patreon.com forward slash theprehistoryguys. Not least of all, an extended version of this interview with our guest today. There's almost uh, another half hour of this show available to you and loads more exclusive content as well if you become a supporter of the Prehistory Guys on Patreon. Also, as so many of our fans have demanded, we have, at last, now started work on creating a sequel to our acclaimed film Standing With Stones. Now, obviously, this is a massive project, and your help in achieving this next goal would be hugely appreciated. So do hop over and take a look at our Patreon page. We would love to welcome you as partners in this exciting adventure. Yeah, we uh, hope to see you around in the community. In the meantime, don't you think, I think we better say hello to our guest and get on with the show. <laughs> I think we should. <laughs> Dr. Lee Bray, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. What's the weather like down in sunny Exeter? Uh, a bit dull, um, but we did have a very light sprinkling of snow this morning, which is very oh, unusual in Exeter. I mean, Devon doesn't get it generally, apart from the moors, but to have it yeah. in Exeter is really unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are indoors instead of on the moors. Yes, uh, I'm not too displeased about that, given how cold yeah. it is out there. So I think the wind chill's about minus 10 on Dartmoor at the moment. Yeah. With is wind it chill. really? Ooh, yeah, it's Lord. not warm. Well, uh, well <laughs> in, that, in, ca in that case, we're, we're glad to be saving you from unpleasantness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be a Dartmoor pony. Mm. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, Lee, we, we always start these interviews off because people do love to know... Uh, the first question is always, what is it that got you into archaeology in the first place? Uh, well, I've always, ever since being young, been interested in the past and um, visiting places. But in, in when I was in a former life, if you like, I was a geologist um, oh. through the through the from the that was my first um, first degree, if you like, first two degrees, really. I did a postgraduate master's in geology as well and spent the 90s nice. working in the oil industry. Um but I guess I guess most people buy a motorbike um, or you know get a tattoo or something. But I I decided I was going to go back to university and study archaeology. Uh, and the thing that actually prompted me to do that this is going to sound corny, but the thing that really pushed me over the over the edge, as it were, was watching Time Team. Uh, I, I mean, many okay. archaeologists are quite sniffy about Time Team, but for me, it's it was instrumental in in a, in my career choice and instrumental, I think, in, in the popularity of archaeology as a as a discipline today with the general public i think yeah. i think Ms. mick aston the late Ms. mick aston oh, said yeah. um well 
you don't see a young accountants club, do you? And that speaks <laughs> volumes to me. <laughs> so, but yeah, time yeah. team would be would be the um, would be the the single most um, um, single factor really the the greatest factor, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, but but what what was your academic path then, uh, Lee, to into archaeology from that? My original one was geology at Kingston, what is now Kingston University, but was then Kingston yeah. Polytechnic. Mm. Um, and then a few years later, I I did a master's in mineral exploration at um, Royal School of Mines, Imperial College, in London. And then I did my undergraduate and then a PhD in um, in archaeology at, at Exeter University. So, okay. What was your doctorate? That was uh, Roman Iron Working on Exmoor. Um, or Romano-British Iron Working on Exmoor. Iron Production on Exmoor was my... Uh, that's what I studied. Um, so, right. yeah, the Moorlands have always figured strongly, but, you know, Roman archaeology sort of... Uh, Roman Iron Working, it harks back to my geological background as well fascinating stuff well uh, do you know what uh, we have uh, so many of our viewers are they're all over the world mm. particularly we've got a lot of people over in the united states for example and so a lot of them don't actually know about dartmoor itself anyway so can you give us a bit of a background on the context of Dartmoor, you know, what is it? What makes it different? What makes it special? It's geology, you know, and and it's uh, the, the history of the land itself, which yeah, will give sure. a, you know, a better context um, for for human history. Well, Dartmoor's history really starts somewhere in the region of two hundred and seventy to three hundred million years ago. Um, with um, at that time, what is now Southwest Britain, the bit that sticks out at the bottom of the UK. Uh, was at the bottom of a very deep ocean. Mm. Um, and in terms of plate tectonics, uh, that ocean was slowly closing, which meant that all the sediments, huge depths of sediments in the bottom of that ocean, were thrust up into a massive mountain chain, um, something on the scale of the Himalayas today. Um, oh, my which goodness. Which stretched, stretched from, um, well, certainly from southwest Britain into Brittany. The Brittany yeah, in yeah. France has a very similar geology. Um, and into the roots of those mountains, all this upheaval going on, was thrust this huge mass of molten rock, which slowly cooled over millions of years to become uh, to become the granite of which Dartmoor is formed. But Dartmoor is only a very small part of that granite mass because it really forms the spine, if you like, of Devon and Cornwall that mm, stick out mm. at the bottom, and also the Scilly Isles. It stretches mm. way out into the... Uh, into the Atlantic and all we see today are the very tops of that granite uh, being exposed by weathering after all those mountains I was speaking of they've all been eroded away over over millions of years to expose this granite at, at the roots and because the granite is really hard and tough it doesn't weather as quickly as the surrounding rocks so it forms uplands uh, and those mm. are dotted down the length of Devon and Cornwall Dartmoor is the largest and the most eastern of those of those um, of those granite masses granite bosses i think you might call them sticking oh, out at right. the top good word um, yeah. and that really has shaped dartmoor dartmoor's subsequent history because it's always been an upland ever since it's been exposed oh, yeah. uh, which means it's subject to very different climatic conditions um and its materials are um are different the granite itself is hard and that's one of the reasons why we have so much archaeology on dartmoor yeah. Yeah. that combined right. with its upland character means that um although people have lived there and operated there for centuries and millennia 
uh, it's never been as intense, intensely worked as it has in the lowlands where, you know, agriculture has effaced a lot of the archaeology and a lot of the remains of the past. They get recycled constantly. That doesn't happen mm-hmm. on Dartmoor, not to the same extent. So you have granite and a lack of, a relative lack of human activity or intensity of activity have left us with this wonderful record of, um, of the human past. Yeah. And that would be the human past since the Ice Age, I get, um, I, I, I suppose. How far did, did, did the ice extend down to Dartmoor? In the, in That's the a good question. And a, and a source of great debate at the moment among geomorphologists ah, and glaciologists. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a debate we've accidentally contributed to. Um, <laughs> some um, geomorphologists have been out on Dartmoor looking at some of the landforms and saying, these look a bit glacial in places. Did Dartmoor have small ice caps in the last ice age? Um, and we were excavating uh, some years ago now at Sitterford Stone Circle, which is near Sitterford Tor and Fernworthy, that eastern part mm. of the moor. And we'd exposed, we'd taken off the peat and the underlying paleo, the old fossilised soil, and we were down mm. onto what we saw to be the natural substrate the weathered bedrock but it didn't look Mm. like anything we'd see usually on granite we usually we have a material called growen which is a yellow sandy material rotted down granite Uh, Mm. but this wasn't like that this was a lot finer and we had a had an academic from um plymouth university visiting because he was doing some sampling for us he took one look at it and said that looks like glacial till Amazing. So we we have accidentally contributed to, to that debate on whether or not Dartmoor had any ice caps. Yeah. Um, now, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll come back to a Sitterford Stone Circle I <laughs> yeah. bet, later on, but in the meantime, obviously, we can only speak to uh, human activity on Dartmoor uh, post whatever glaciation that may have been, and. Of course, we're talking about uh, Mesolithic activity. In the Mesolithic, do you think that the Dartmoor area would have been quite as well-defined an area as it is now, as we can see now? Possibly not. I mean, Mm. uh, because in the wake of the Ice Age, during the Ice Age, before 10,000-ish years BC, um, the place would have been tundra or covered in ice caps whichever side of that debate you come down on um so but after the after that after that ended we had rapid climatic warming which meant over several thousand years trees spread across the landscape up from southern europe and it changed the landscape totally and with those trees came hunter gatherers but dartmoor wouldn't be an exception um it would have been um covered in trees Uh, a forested landscape perhaps except for the highest points of the ground which would have been rather more heath-like like like they are today really Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it may have been somewhat different because um, somewhat more like Wisman's Wood if you've ever been there where we have Mm -hmm. uh, sort of rather um, I forget the actual name of uh, the the, the oak species but they don't grow as as big as mighty oaks don't think of the landscape as being covered in mighty oak trees or anything it would have been rather more scrub-like forested mm. but mm. but uh, and dense but but less uh, less tall and mm-hmm. and um and full perhaps so and what is the evidence for uh, human activity in the mesolithic um the mesolithic is a period which 
we know there was activity because we have flint scatters that these people have left behind them uh, in many parts of Dartmoor. Um, they're not all Mesolithic, some of them are later, mm. but we know there's a Mesolithic component to them. The problem is, is it's not very well studied. We yeah. contrast with um, our neighbour Exmoor uh, over that, where quite a lot of work has, has been undertaken on, on the Mesolithic, so they know an awful lot about what was going on. Here on Dartmoor, we, we don't know very much at all. Um, but we are trying to rectify that. We have, um, we very soon, Leicester University in conjunction with Dartmoor, we have a PhD student starting who will start to study uh, some of our, what we call lithic tools, um, mm. some of that evidence. So with luck, we should know a little bit more about that in a few years, which will point mm. the way for future research, I hope. Mm. Mm. Right. Fascinating stuff. Well, um, there is so much history or prehistory that we could talk about here so uh, i'm almost not even going to try to uh, make this chronological it's just it's how it leaps out one of the things that we're quite um, passionate about one way or another is stone rows and the thing is dartmoor has got it's got more stone rows than anywhere else uh, in the british isles hasn't it it's uh, i think it, it's something like 60 percent of england's stone rows it's astonishing, isn't it? And, and the thing is that it's amazing, really, when there's such a concentration of them on Dartmoor, and yet they still remain a complete and utter mystery to us. Now, you are one of the few individuals, you've probably spent more time with Stone Rose than uh, <laughs> than most of the rest of the human population. So, <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> have yeah. you put together, do you have any thoughts or ideas yourself on what purpose they may have served? The first thing to say about that is um, our dating of stone rows is rather sketchy. Was, um, yeah. They are generally thought to be to fall somewhere in the middle of the third millennium BC, so around two and a half thousand uh, years BC, so late Neolithic, early Bronze Age, that sort of period. Yeah. Um, that's the generally accepted view, but there's, there's a proviso to that. I mean, usually that's because they're very often associated with cairns, which are uh, we're fairly confident are an early Bronze Age phenomenon, mostly. Yes. However, um, they are incredibly hard to date directly. Um, in advance of uh, clay uh, waste deposition on southern Dartmoor, uh, back in the 70s or 80s, I forget exactly when, but that sort of time ago, an entire stone row was excavated at Cholwich Town. I oh, think really? I'm pronouncing that correctly, Golly. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No dating evidence whatsoever was found. <laughs> Really? Oh, these me. these things are, are. I mean, it's so, the same applies to most sort of things like stone circles. Is that what yeah. you have is a stone set in a socket, um, mm. usually, mm. and there's not much you can date there unless you're very lucky and find something in the socket. And even mm. then, yeah. you can never be sure that the stone hasn't been removed and put back at some back point. Back again, yeah, yeah. True. So yes. our data on dating is is really quite sparse. And now we add to that um, back in. About 10 years ago, um, a, a monument or a feature was spotted on Cut Hill, which is one of the most remote parts of Dartmoor, right on the northern moor, where there were a series of recumbent stones lying down. They're not standing up, but they were in a line that disappeared under the peat. Mm. So uh, we're not sure the extent of this, but it looks for all the world like a stone row that's not standing anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And Ralph Fife... Uh, academic at Plymouth University and um, Tom Greaves who's a, also a Dartmoor scholar 
did some work there where they they went out to Cut Hill and they looked at two of these stones um, and looked at the peat underneath them that they were lying on top of. And now that peat you can date because it's organic material. You can take it away and do some radiocarbon dating on it. So that's what they did with two of these stones. And both those dates, what that date will tell you is how long that stone has been lying on that peat because no other peat has accumulated. Mm. Directly underneath both of those stones, the peat came back with a date of 3,500 years BC. So a 1,000 mm. years earlier than we were thinking. Yeah. Um, that's the date that the stones were lying down and it had gone out of use, presumably. Mm, now, there are yeah. problems with dating peat. Um, mm. it, it, lots of technical difficulties I don't fully understand. But um, what that tells us is we've got to be cautious about these monuments. And, yes. uh, and it also tells us that potentially they have a huge time depth in which they yeah. are in use. Yeah. Um, that's a very long period of time if, you know, if we are looking at monuments like that still being built a thousand years after they start. I think that's yeah. something that I really want people to get an impression of. You know, the, Dartmoor is a very special place because unlike, because to a certain extent it is preserved, you know, all that it's got to give us is kind of preserved in aspic, if you like, because it's undeveloped <laughs> and all those ki kinds of things. You know. uh, and so what we're looking through is a lens going very deep in prehistory. Pre and so we, we look at Dartmoor, we see kists, we see stone rows, we see stone circles. In our mind's eye, they all get collapsed together. Yeah, they're telescoped, aren't they? All into one horizon, yeah. if you like. <clears throat> uh, that, that's right. And whereas the true story is of occupation over you know, a vast period of time. If yeah. you include the Mesolithic, then it's uh, you know, a silly time period. But even if you just take it from the beginning of the Neolithic up to you know, the early Bronze Age, um, it, it's still an extraordinary amount of time in which to put all this... <laughs> these uh, these monuments and 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 break them down and so on and so forth, which is why Sitterford Stone Circle and Cut Hill are so important because previously it's been in guesswork. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, if you if you if you got more to say about that aspect of it and and what's come out from the archaeology, of yeah, that I mean. Apart from looking at a landscape and looking at all the features in it and how how they are, they are an accumulation, really, we're seeing a final position. And there's no guarantee mm. that all those monuments were in use at the same time. Um, that's one factor of, of that. The other is individual monuments. Uh, take any monument you like. Um, and if they are as long-lived as some of them are, their meanings change over time, almost certainly, to their users. They mean different things yeah. uh, to, to the people who used them and built them. And also their forms change. And each individual monument will have changed its ca its shape and what it consisted of over time. Um, so there's, you've got that ad added layer of complexity when you're trying to understand what they're about. Um, the, the analogy I always think of in my head is our, is our churches in our mm. landscape today. Um, when they were built, they were very strongly about Christianity. They may also mm -hmm. have been about something new that was replacing something old. Uh, mm. They would also be much more perhaps centres of the community than they are now. Um, but if you then project that over time, they will have had all sorts of meanings over that time. They will have been changed and adapted, um, rebuilt, demolished, 
you know, um, just added to, taken away from. And then in more recent times, we're in a, we're in a position now where many of them are being used for other functions. You know, yes. I've actually attended in in the past. I've attended in a church a medieval sword fighting lessons. You know, European <laughs> martial arts lessons. So yeah. very weird and and different things going on in churches, and they're a very good analogy to something like, say, a stone row or a cairn, which has changed yeah. its shape and probably its function, and what people thought about it over time. Yeah. So yeah. that's the analogy I always always have in my mind. Yeah, but yeah. that's so but, true, especially when you think that some of them are deconsecrated and people are actually li- they cha- change them yes. into apartments and Lord knows Perfect. what. So what what future archaeologists will make of all that? <laughs> well, it, exactly. I mean, I mean, in France, I know, I know there are bunkers from the Atlantic Wall that people are living in. You know, they've converted to houses. <laughs> yes. So very, you know, we, we're still doing the same things, but with different. Yeah. You know, they've got very different meanings and uses now. Yeah, and yeah. if you're looking at monument that's been in use for a thousand, I mean, take Stonehenge is the classic example. It's changed and altered over the course of 1500 years and yeah. it's been in use for that length of time. There's no way that it meant exactly the same thing to the people who were using it in its latter stages that it meant to the people who built it. Very mm, different yeah. things. Yeah. Mm, it must mm. have been. So, I mean, mm. that's an automatic assumption you have to make, I think, when trying to understand what these um, monuments might have been about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the original question was what a stone stone rose about was <laughs> I've gone way off that now um, so, <laughs> but uh, if I go back to that one um you you're in your your video on um standing standing with stones I've forgotten the title yeah, I've been watching yeah, that yeah, that's the one <laughs> I love the way you, you you just write off the the astronomical alignments because I'm completely with you there i think it's yeah i I think yeah it's not i don't agree or or see much in that myself either um that's not to say that they're not aligned on things in the landscape that may have been significant to people Um, so that's that's one thing you also talk about processional ways and that's another that i've I've seen seen them discussed as being metaphors in a procession a processional metaphor if you like from birth uh, where you have the terminal stone across one end of the you know at one end of the oh, monument yeah, yeah, yeah. you walk along it which is a metaphor for life and at the end of it you've got a cairn which is funereal and that's death mm. so i've mm. seen that that discussed i've heard people talk about the different shapes of the stones and how they there are two basic shapes of a a pole or pillar type one with a, a flatter fin shaped one uh, those are the broad uh, shape then you can sort of see that if you look at them and they've talked about those in in terms of night and day in terms of male and female perhaps they yes. represent individual people you know things we can't access now so those, those are all very valid ideas but one that's captured my imagination recently and it, it just strikes me as something that as archaeologists and people who think about the past we've completely missed um which we, we, i mean it's in the title of what we, we we're discussing here prehistory that means there's no history, which means there's no written record. Um, people at this time didn't have writing, um, so they had no way of recording things. Um, not easily, anyway. And there's an academic in Australia, Lynn MacDonald. I think it's Lynn MacDonald. Or have I got a Lynn something? <laughs> oh, dear, I can't remember her name. That's terrible. Um, Don't worry, we'll pop this up. That name rings yeah. a bell. Lynn MacDonald is the, is, the, is the historian who wrote about the First World War, I think. It's Lynn something. Right. Oh dear. Lynn, I've got her Lynn book Kelly? on the, Are you talking, Lynn Kelly, you that's talking about it. Lynn, Lynn Kelly? Kelly. Yes, <laughs> that's the one. Um, uh, yeah, she used, one, uh, she used um, our reconstruction of... Uh, 
of Stanton Drew in her book. <laughs> oh, did she? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I do like her ideas about memory um, mm -hmm. and how particularly Stone Rose, I think, could be analogous to a, a material um, memory palace, if you like, what Sherlock's yeah. supposed to do on, on the television, where he, <laughs> this Greek technique for remembering <laughs> yes. things. Yes. Uh, and when you can, I mean, um, Lynn Kelly says about, in, in her writing about how traditional societies um, without writing, all of them have sophisticated technologies for remembering the things they need to remember to survive. Yes. Yeah. Where the animals are, when you plant your seeds, who's related to who, uh, going back generations. All these things need to be remembered to maximise chances mm. of survival and, and prosperity. Mm. And it, it might be that some of our monuments, like stone rows, may have had a function like that. And you can see how they might if you walk along them. You've got this shaped stone, it reminds you of this. So you have to, that automatically triggers a remembering of different sorts of information. I mean, yeah. these are these are all ideas and all of them are valid and may, may be simultaneously valid. They, they're not mutually exclusive, usually. Sure. So sure. I, I That's think very true, yeah. monuments are very sophisticated and very complicated things. And I, don't, I think anyone pushing a single interpretation of them is almost certainly barking up the wrong tree. But any insight is a good insight, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I always liken yeah. it to uh, studying prehistory is a bit like being the, a frog sitting on a lily pot pad in the middle of a pond. And every time he jumps, he jumps halfway to the edge of the pond, which means he'll never, ever reach the edge of the pond, but he'll get closer. And for me, that's what studying prehistory is like. There was a lovely quote uh, that uh, I heard on, on one of your talks when you said that history is just a subset of archaeological information. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, don't want to upset anybody, but yeah, right on. <laughs> I was being inflammatory deliberately there. Just to, that's something one of my tutors once said to me. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. But again, Dartmoor, the funny thing about Dartmoor is that there's just so much archaeology and there's nothing grandiose, you know. So you, you, you don't get the impressions of high status anything and then suddenly you've got the kissed at White Horse Hill. Yeah. Um, now, I, I would uh, love you to tell our viewers and listeners a bit about how that discovery actually came about and the Friday afternoon panic <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and everything that came out of that, uh, that excavation, because it is quite extraordinary. It, yeah, it is. Well, it's a, it's a discovery of international importance, really. It, it's way beyond, its significance goes way beyond Dartmoor. Um, right. It's uh, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, given the stress that was probably involved, I, wa it, I wasn't in post at the time it was found. All oh. I did was come into post and deal with the book launch. That was my job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, it was my predecessor who who had the had the excitement and the stress of dealing dealing with such a discovery. But the the story goes is that um, the kist had been identified in the late nineties, I think. Um, eroding out of the face, a peat face on Hanging Stone Hill or Whitehorse Hill. They're close together. Um, and it had been noted, and it was noted the erosion was carrying on. And so the National Park tried to prevent the erosion and by building a dry stone wall across this face of peat. 
But mm. ten years later, it became clear that that was failing, and they just it was decided that we, we're going to need to excavate this to make sure that um, you know there's nothing in it. No one was expecting anything because it had been exposed to the air for a for a while, um, and they you know duly set to excavate. Got everybody in place. We're excavating and. Um, I'm told, I'm relaying other people's stories to, to, to you now. Um, it was a Friday afternoon, and this is typical archaeology. Um, the weather was cl- <laughs> going to close in over the weekend, and, and they had this kist open on the moor uh, uh, on Friday afternoon, and they knew the weather was coming in, so they were, they were you know, trying to get things done and, and, and get things into a, into a position where they could leave it. Nobody and found miles anything. from anywhere, I think that's Oh, it's one, of the, it? it's yeah. one of the highest points in the southwest. This is about... Mm just over 600 metres above sea level, and it is remote. It's difficult to get to. You can drive to the foot of the hill along the most atrocious tracks imaginable, (laughs) uh, but you can do it. Um, Otherwise, it just wouldn't be doable, I don't think. But everything was was going according to plan until suddenly a bead rolled out of the out of where they were excavating. <laughs> and, As they um, do. <laughs> yeah, and given the context, we Gee. have, I think, 70-something kists on Dartmoor, and none of them have yielded yeah, anything yeah. more than, a, a, um, I think, a flint flake or, or something like that and, and a piece of charcoal. That's about it. Yeah. But you've got an actual bead which told you that actually there might be something left in here. My and goodness. there was a sort of reddish mass of something that looked like fur as well. And it was at this point um, that they realised that actually they had something quite special, and that was when the panic set in, because um, if it had been exposed to the weather, it would have just mm. all been ruined. So um, they tried to get hold of the military um, to see if they could help, but there was no help. The they, could, they couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you do on Northern Dartmoor. They often help us out. Um, so we have a very good working relationship with them. So, But there just wasn't anything available. They tried to get hold of the commoners, the farmers who grazed the land, but um, they were in a, a, at an agricultural show in Oakhampton, so none of those them were available either. Um, so what they did in the end was, because they had a lot of uh, cling film, it's something you use to wrap samples of peat in, and the peat yeah. specialists were there, they wrapped the entire kist, um, the, the base stone of it and the material inside it, in cellophane, um, yeah. and put it in a wheelbarrow and wheeled it off the moor. And apparently this, it was so heavy that, that you, you couldn't get two people on a wheelbarrow. It wasn't physically possible. But it was so heavy that um, <laughs> you could make about eight to ten yards before you had to put it down and somebody else had to take over. So they had to do that for about a kilometre across the moorland to get to a vehicle. Yeah. It then spent the night um, in in a Land Rover, I think, outside my predecessor's house before they drove it <laughs> as an emergency to, to um, Cheltenham. Is it Cheltenham? Mm. Yeah, I think it's... Or is it... Anyway, some, uh, 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 um, a conservation lab up in that, that sort of area. Um, and um, then they excavated it in the lab a centimetre mm. at a time. And mm. it yielded... Um, in those famous words, wonderful things, you know. Yes. So, I mean, did you want yeah. me to talk about the the things that were in it as a... Well, I, I think well, yeah. as a rounding off, you know, to... You know, I mean, we've we've galloped through yes. in the, in <laughs> the chronology, if, if, you, if you like, and we'll probably backtrack. But as a kind of rounding off, you know, as to where in 
prehistory this fits you know where in the chrono chronology this burial fits I, I i think you know is just wonderful to describe you know the detail of uh, uh, the finds in in that kist it being so I special will, i will talk about the dates but it, it's it's a good idea to understand what was in it first as you say um yeah. and what was in it were I mean, the great thing about it is it, it was preserved in peat, which is exactly the name of the, the, the volume of, that, um, that describes the finds. Um, all sorts of organic material, which we don't usually see, as you almost certainly know, on an archaeological site because it rots away. But the peat yeah. preserved it. Uh, and to run through a quick list of what was in that, it was in it. It was a cremation burial um, of, um, of a young... Well, a gracile individual, as they they call it, we think a young woman, most likely, from the, the fragments of bone that's surviving. Um, and she was accompanied in her death by, uh, there are fabrics or fragments of fabric, including one that's a composite, I think it's nettle uh, fibre, but combined with a leather fringe that has sort of oh, tri- zigzaggy triangular fringe, which is unique yeah. in Northern Europe. Uh, how, nothing like that has been found. Um there was um i'm trying to remember it all now um that my favorites are the are the two uh, or four studs that are turned spindle wood and that's an uh, firstly oh, that's oh, yeah. that's an example of i think it's the earliest wood turning either in the uk or or europe i think by about 500 years i can't remember which wow. but it's certainly in the uk um and i like those because we interpret them as um Lebrette's ear, ear or lip stretchers, put, putting in your, uh, you know, those hit those um, holes oh, people put in their ears amazing. and stretch yeah. and stretch, yeah, yeah. and possibly the smaller ones are for um, for your lips. Maybe that's an interpretation, and I like that most because it's a touch of human human. You're touching a human there. You're touching mm. how, how part part of how they express themselves, how they express yeah, yeah. their identities. Which is is a difficult thing to access, really di- in a really direct way, and and I love that. That that makes them my favourite objects from from the kist. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also uh, over two hundred beads of um, baked clay, shale from Dorset, amber, obviously from much mm-hmm. further afield, and intriguingly tin. Um, yes, you'd have to be. Obviously, these could be traded items, um, the mm-hmm. tin I'm talking about here. Um, but you'd be churlish, I think, to think not to think this is local. This is evidence of local exploitation of tin. Uh, so yeah. that's those are the interpreted as the remains of a necklace. There's another band of intricately um, woven cow hair with tin studs in it. Mm-hmm. Um, which would have been quite a shiny, spectacular piece. We think that's an armlet or a bracelet. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? The whole thing is wrapped up in a, a fur, which, it, uh, from what I've been told, took a long time to find a specialist to identify it, and they found one in <laughs> Germany, I think, eventually, and it's a brown bear pelt. So it gives you perhaps some idea. Obviously, it could be traded, but it also might be giving you an idea of just how different the environment was. Yeah, uh, in yeah. in at this period, the yeah. whole thing I think was then held together with a copper alloy. I have to say copper alloy because I'm an archaeologist. I'm not allowed to say bronze. They'll sack me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> copper alloy um, pin about yay long. So um, yeah. 
an incredibly rich. I don't think I've missed anything out there, but I may have done. But an incredibly rich um, find for yeah. Dartmouth, giving you a glimpse of this period. The dates um, fall somewhere we think in the eighteen hundred BC range, yeah. which is interesting. That's the early Bronze Age. Um, yes. There is a hint, and it is only a hint. I'm told that um, some of them may ha- some of the objects may have different dates, slightly earlier, suggesting they may be heirlooms. Okay. Um, they yeah. may have been curated, mm-hmm. and so it's an interesting period on Dartmoor, indeed across the whole country, because it's on the cusp, the very cusp of the period when we start to see roundhouses and yeah. all our reef systems on Dartmoor. So this this yeah. woman, assuming it was a woman, which is the best um, best interpretation at the moment, mm. is of that period just before all that starts to happen, before people start to build these permanent houses and divide the land up in the rigorous way that um, they, they do in the slightly later Bronze Age. Yeah, so she's yeah. at the end of a tradition of, of building cairns, perhaps. Yeah. The, the, the mm-hmm. peak of cairn building is probably over by this time. Yeah. The cow yeah. hair. Oh, that was the other thing that was in it. Basketry, uh, which oh. modern basket makers, oh, yeah. the beads okay. were all in a basket. Um, and modern basket makers um, have heaped praise on the technical skill of the people who made it, made the yeah, baskets out right. of lime bast with cow hair decoration from memory. Something that's just uh, occurred to me is that you speak of this boundary, then this transition, which on Dartmoor seems to much more mark this uh, this transition from within the Bronze Age from an earlier system into the Reeve system when people start to uh, of field division to put a, another, you know, for want of a better description of that and uh, circular house building or hut uh, building and that seems much more pronounced than than on than there has been from the um, Neolithic into the Bronze Age per se as we see, tend to see elsewhere, when where it's obvious that uh, beaker uh, culture has in uh, taken over what was there yeah. there before, and and this seems to be a, a kind of a much later transition. Or do we de- or do we see both? Just that one is more pronounced than the other. I think the archaeology is deceiving us slightly, um, uh-huh. especially on Dartmoor, uh, where we see the sudden appearance of these stone-built roundhouses. I mean, that gives the impression that it's a sudden occurrence. It's like people suddenly yeah. start building over the course of a short period of time, building these houses and, and constructing reefs and field systems. And to some extent they do. They start doing them in that way. But it's probably the result of an evolving system of living on Dartmoor that has been going on since at least the Beaker period. Um Excitingly, and this is news hot off the press, we've been doing some work with um, with Brighton University, Dr. Chris Carey there, who's a specialist in um, geoarchaeology, so looking at geological materials and trying to understand how they, what they tell us about uh, how people were living and affecting their environment. Um, mm-hmm. We are excavating um, a hut circle at Holwell Tor on Haytor Down near 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 Bovey Tracy. Um, and part of the work we've done there so far was looking under the reeves at some of the preserved soils. The reeves would be built on top of a soil yeah. and that soil would be fossilised, if you like. Uh, 
And one of the conclusions we are looking at there is that before the reefs are built, built, um, we are seeing soil degradation and soil erosion already in this landscape. So that's almost certainly human activity doing that. So we're we're looking at a situation where humans are already having a deleterious effect on that. You know, they're already degrading the soils. They're being washed away. Um, Uh. So what we're looking at with the reeves and the roundhouses is potentially a system in which, which has developed in response or partially in response to this degrading environment. Oh, I see. It's not the start of a process. It's actually the end of one or a stage within that process. Oh, I um, see. Yeah. It's just that the archaeology is so solid and so well preserved that we see yeah. that, and automatically, our, you know, without, without any other evidence, we leap to the conclusion: oh, people started farming in this environment and enclosing land, whereas actually they've been doing that for centuries, uh, but in a slightly different way that doesn't mm. show up as ar- archaeologically. That's the theory at the moment, and we've got supporting evidence for very similar processes um, going on on Exmoor. Uh, under hmm. their um, the little area they have of similar uh, reeves, I guess you'd call them. They look very much like them uh, on Cods yeah. End Moor, which is on Exmoor. So very similar things going on on the uplands out across yeah. the board, really. So in a sense, we owe the preservation of what there is on, on Dartmoor, the uh, plethora of stone monuments and, and the archaeology that's buried in in the peat, which is a bit of a treasure trove in itself, I suppose, if you get to examine and uh, dig down on it, um, it, it is th- that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. He needs new batteries. <laughs> <laughs> This erosion, this um, erosion and depletion of the soils, which is caused by human activity, that's what has preserved this area uh, for posterity, really, because it's been left alone. I mean, it it is, (laughs) it's amazing to me more widely how often it is that places that are, that we find beautiful, um, or that have mm. good archaeology are often places that are the scenes of ecological disasters in the yes. past that yeah. are human yeah, induced. Yeah. Iceland's <laughs> another case in point that um, yeah. you know this huge Viking Age heritage and a fantastic landscape, uh, but brought about by Viking settlers who've eroded all the soils. <laughs> you know, yeah. so you know, yeah. It, it, yeah. and we now find that an amazing place to be. And Dartmoor's sort of the same. It's the, they are the product of. Um, humans and nature interacting uh, yeah, people yeah. often describe dartmoor as a wilderness it's one of the things that comes up most often in surveys of you know words that people use to describe dartmoor and it, it's so erroneous it's not true yes. you know it's it's yeah, a product yeah. of human management over in other many words, thousands artificial, of years yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah i was going to say the fact that that management changes means that the dartmoor changes in response you yeah. know that's what yeah. happens it's a it's a balance and a you know and something we, we deal with yeah. or try to deal yeah. with. That dating of the um, building of 
uh, hut circles and, and you know the, the, the well the remains we see they're marked all over the landscape on ordnance survey hut circles yeah. hut circles hut circles but the later dating of that if you're su- suggesting is um the implication of that is that we shouldn't be associating those necessarily with the earlier monuments with the with the circles with the stone circles and with the stone rows even though they're often in proximity to them um yeah, that's right yeah, I mean, we assume when we look, I and mean, particularly somewhere like Merivale, you know, which so many people visit, you know, just over the dip there, you've got loads of hut circles, and the assumption is, well, those are the people that built the um, uh, the monument, but it ain't necessarily so. Am I? No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, given all we've said about the dating of stone rows, uh, and yeah. uh, you know, they are of very different dates. Um, but what is interesting on that site and and on others, is that they left them alone. They are respected yes. by, yes. as far as we can tell, I mean, it might be there's a yeah. whole load of stone rows they've demolished <laughs> that we, we can't see anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> um, from, from what we can see, I mean, one of the things, the lesser less obvious features that runs through that site is the Great Western Reeve. Now, that's a, that's the longest reeve on Dartmoor. It runs from Sharpetor above Burrator Reservoir. Yeah all the way up across Walkhampton Common to Merivale. Then it goes off north um, up the Walkhampton River and across um, a tour there and up oh to White Tor. It ends just the other side a, of White Tor. Just say a bit more about what a reeve is, because I don't think we've you know, Sorry, sort of yes. done that uh, A reeve is, yeah. is, is a land division, which is it's a local term for a land division of, uh, of usually a Bronze Age date. Uh, middle okay. Bronze Age date. So around the years, around the centuries, around 1500 BC. They look like uh, low earth banks with stones sticking out of them. Some are more obvious than others. Um, the one mm. at Merivale, the Great Western Reeve, it's not very obvious when you get to, to Merivale unless you know what you're looking for. But it crosses the site and it does so just beyond the ends of the stone rows. So instead of going right through them, it has avoided the whole site and marches uh, off to the north. Okay. Um, the, the Venford Reeve on Holm Moor is the same. Um, it is the like a terminal reeve, it marks the end of the reeve system. I mean, these reeves can define entire landscapes covered in fields. Um, but the, the Venford Reeve on Holmmoor, just beyond it, about just a few metres, two or three metres, is a stone row. Mm. It hasn't, mm. It's gone alongside and parallel to the stone row, but it hasn't disturbed it at all, mm. as far as we can mm. see. Mm. Uh, as always, there is an exception somewhere where a reef does go through. I can't remember where it is, but it does go through the through the stone row. But usually you find that um, Middle Bronze Age people respected or seem to have respected and even sometimes refer to um, some of the earlier monuments. There's a um, To widen things slightly, there is a hut circle on Bobbin Moor and another I can think of on, on Exmoor you sit in the middle of the stone circle, you look out the doorway of the, and there is a, is a barrow. Um, just, okay. Oh, okay. It frames the barrow. Um, mm. I can't remember. I think that's Porlock Common on, on Exmoor that is the one I'm thinking okay. of. But, mm. Um, mm. but you, you find that sort of, that, that, you know, we divide the past up into these easily, these chunks that are easy to yeah. think yeah. about and discuss. But in the past, that's not how they were experienced, you know, 
they weren't experienced as oh look it's I've woken up today it's the Neolithic I better start farming um, it's a much <laughs> it's a much more gradual um, process than that and and people at the time you know and when you start to look at the archaeology in, in detail you see that transitions are often very very blurred uh, the, yeah. mo- the best mm. example archaeologically is probably the start of the Bronze Age. Uh, no. We can't even decide when that starts, really. <laughs> and it's only in recent years yeah. we've decided that, with improvements in dating, that the archaeologists have decided that actually there is actually a Copper Age that lasts a little yes. while before full bronze starts to... People start making bronze with yeah. tin. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yes. It is one of probably one of the greatest failings, if it's not unfair to say that, one of the greatest failings of archaeology is our desperate need to categorise everything and sometimes we put things into separate groups when they actually don't belong in separate groups at yeah. all. Mm. They're just different manifestations of the same thing or whatever, you know. But, yeah, we do it a lot. Mm. It's, um, um, there's another another saying about the past, which is it's, uh, the, looking at the past is like looking into a well. It's very dark and often all you see is yourself reflected back. <laughs> Which means that's lovely. And and what it means is we often project the way we think onto the past. Um, yeah. And it's a very easy thing to do to make assumptions because that's obviously what I would do. That's what they must have been thinking. And it's it it ain't necessarily so. They had a very and the further back in the past you go, the weirder they get, I always think. (laughs) 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 That's the more out there. But that's I'm the afraid we're going to use that, Lee. We're going to use that. <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yes, the fun yes, of looking it, at prehistory. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> yeah. why it's that, so yeah, fascinating. That's a bit of a slap in the face, isn't it? Really, it's true. Mm. That's absolutely yeah. true. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, w- one of the things that we, uh, that <laughs> Mike and I, complain about a lot is that. Sometimes you can be looking at uh, a, a, an artifact that, uh, or a monument that that might have been uh, might have been used in the most practical sense, and yet always we want to say that it's ritual or that it's deeply spiritual or that you know that we we put whatever fancy notions on it when there's just no reason to go there. Really, I, we do it a lot. I, I agree. However. That is us projecting ourselves onto the past again, but by the fact of dividing something into functional and spiritual. Yes. They're not necessarily different things to mm, people yes. living in the past, or indeed traditional societies today. For Their sure. categorization of the world could be very, very different to the way we, uh, we understand it. Um, mm, mm. And that's another problem. I was, I was in a seminar recently being held by um, Henrietta Quinnell, who's the preeminent prehistorian historian in southwest britain i mean she knows she knows far more than i you know she's forgotten more than i can ever know i think but she was talking about <laughs> neolithic houses and that's something that's very elusive in the archaeological record it's very hard for us to find where people were living in the neolithic we see all these yes. monuments but we don't see the domestic side of life um and she was talking about how recently in different parts of the country including devon you find these sites with lots of pits on them um yes. And often you find bits of pot in these pits and organic material uh, buried in them. And they are whole scatters of them. And if you look closely at the pattern of them on sun sites, there are gaps in the distribution. And it could be the gaps are where the houses are. And the pits ah. are all that's left, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. And we're interpreting, because a lot of the material in these pits seems to have been placed quite deliberately. It, they look like, as you say, ritual pits. 
And then somebody asked the question is, do we have any do we have any evidence for them being latrines? Mm. And nobody's looked at that. Mm. Nobody's yet looked at that. They're relatively recently identified, but nobody's kind of looked at it. But it's a good example of, um, yeah. yeah, they may have been <laughs> latrines, but they may have been both. Yeah. You know, there may be something special and spiritual about them as well as being <laughs> somewhere where you dump your waste. Um, so if you see what I'm saying, it, it, the, the categorization yeah. would be very, very different to the way we understand things yeah, um, yeah. Or, or very different to the way we would do things, you know, very opposite, the profane and uh, the profane waste and latrine stuff all the way up to something yeah. that's a bit holy and sacred, you know. Yeah, so it's not, not too much of a same. Great- yeah, it's not too much of a digression to uh, um, uh, point out uh, a bee in the, your bonnet that you have about the depiction, you know, the pictor- the, the, the uh, depiction yes. of people in prehistory, you know, on information <laughs> boards or wherever, artists' impressions, shall we say, yeah. you know, of uh, how people were living. And, you know, because... You know, once you've put something down, it's there for quite a long time. The artists, all due respect, have to be a little bit careful. But at they the do. same time, uh, everything gets greyed down a little. I know it's something that you have particular thoughts it, it, about. It is. I've worked with um, reconstruction <laughs> artists, very good reconstruction artists, on a number of occasions, and um, and seen other people's work, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. some periods we're better at than others. We do understand, for example, mostly what... We've got a good idea, I think, of what Roman Britain probably looked like. Sure. In, in mm-hmm. you know, good aspects of it anyway. But when you get to prehistory, it starts to get a bit... Um, I mean, the phrase I always use, again, a bit irreverently, is that everyone in them looks like they've just come from a 1970s Glastonbury festival. <laughs> Even the women have beards, you know. <laughs> I always it's it's one of my lines jokes I always use Um, and although I'm being facetious and I understand the reasons for it I know that um, you know artists have to go where the evidence leads them but we also have to remember that we're seeing a fraction of what 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 was there in the past Um, you know probably less than 10% of all the organic material that was in use things like colour um, yeah. You know, yeah. it's not a great leap of the imagination that um, prehistoric people had coloured cloth. You know, they had mm. vegetable mm. dyes. They may even have had mineral dyes that that worked. You know, we know this. So why are they all brown? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they may have had mm. decorated clothes. We've seen that at White Horse Hill with the leather fringe on, on something, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. So and, and if you take into thing, account things like the uh, the turned wood, if they are uh, the application that, as described, you know that that's uh, you, yeah. you get this imp- yeah real impression of self-expression through adornment and uh, and you look at if that um, was what was going on exactly. You look at um, where I always turn is um, I either go to like the Aboriginal Australians with their you know the yeah. colours and the body paint and that sort yeah. of thing, but also. Uh, Native North, North Americans, those cultures mm-hmm. are yeah. many of them at a Neolithic or or Mesolithic stage. Really, yeah. in, you, they're broadly comparable. They're probably not totally anthropologically comparable, uh, but you know they're they're doing similar things. And you think, look at the differences, the way they looked, how they expressed. Yeah. You know, the funny hairstyles, the paint, the beading, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
we need to keep that in in our heads when we're we're thinking about what the past looked like. I think, uh, and there have yeah. been publications in the past about colour, hmm. and how um, how that um, how that may have may, what what things may have looked like. Hmm. Um, so it's just worth bearing in mind. I think when when we look hmm. at these things and trying to occasionally push the envelope. I always hmm. remember being shown quite simple um, a simple idea. Um, one of my lectures, I think, when I was an undergraduate, we were talking about this issue and our lecturer showed us this series of pictures. And I wish I could remember who the artist was because they were fantastic. And they were showing um, portraits, if you like, of Paleolithic people. So way back in the Ice Age. But the artist had done them in a very um, kind of detailed pencil drawings is what my memory, or maybe pen, but, but black and white. Um, but what he he or she had done is they'd taken people from the tube and basically drawn their portrait but put them portrayed them as a paleolithic person and they really were effective you know they they really looked real like real yeah. people because they were real people they just That's... put the you know uh, we we have an artist yeah. at the at the moment we work with who works with <laughs> photo- photographs um i have no idea how he does it um, Peter Lorimer, he's got a fantastic um, Twitter feed, I think he has, that will show you some of his work. But he does, and he's done, the Historic England page has some fantastic work by him on um, Stonehenge. Um, so have a look at that because okay. he takes photographs and he puts them together and he uses real people and he dresses them up. And some of them work, aren't quite as convincing as others, but he did some White Horse Hill reconstructions for us that are just superb. I, I just love them. They're great. Uh, you know, I think one of the people in one of the pictures now has gone on to work in Coronation Street, but, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> well, but, um, you know, so we what was really evocative, Peter Lorimer. Have, have a look at okay. some of this okay. stuff because they are, he's, he's, he does everything. I've seen him do Second World War um, mm. tank mm. reconstructions all the way back to, oh, um, there's mm. a particular one on the historic environment, um, uh, English heritage, historic, historic England, get it right, um, showing Neolithic cattle herding, which is incredibly ev- evocative, really brilliant, effective photo. Well, but, hopefully um, you we know, can uh, point people in that direction or even uh, show an image or two if uh, yeah, it's indeed, not breaching yeah. anybody's Yeah, have a, have a look uh, for them because they are yeah. often wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. Well, um, obviously, you know, we could talk all day, but... Uh, one of the things that's, that seems to be quite dramatic is that everything changed when there was this major climatic shift around 1000 BC. Um, you know, the, whether it was, you know, the moor just stopped being hospitable and people just moved down into the uh, into the lowlands or, or whatever. Tell us about that period because, it, you know, it's it's such a dramatic change in uh, in what was happening. I, yeah, I mean, I think possibly what you're, I mean, firstly, the only work on climate that's been done, I think, has been Tall Royal Bog. I think some of the work done from a peat sequence there is the only thing that has looked okay. specifically at climate change on um, on Dartmoor and it's particularly at its impact um, on its impact on Bronze Age settlement at the time. And I think the conclusions are that it probably was a factor but it may not be the only factor involved. Yeah, and yeah. the actual um, situation probably was rather more complicated. I mean, look at the current situation. 
we would probably have little evidence for a pandemic, for instance, surviving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either of people or of animals. We, you know, yeah. that's a possible. I, I don't know. Very good point. Um, Very good. But that work has shown that yes, there does seem to be a a real climatic downturn. It gets wetter and colder at yeah. that time. Uh, or roughly around those years, maybe a bit earlier than a thousand BC, but but, but is it correct to say? Yeah, is it correct to say, as far as prehistory is concerned, at least that that's where the line gets drawn, um, around about thousand BC. Well, prehistory. Yeah. Um, no, well, On no, it's a thousand. It's a thousand years later than that, generally. Um, yeah. I mean, you get proto-history where you have other people, like in the Mediterranean writing yeah. about Britain. Um, in yeah, but I mean, as far as Dartmoor is concerned. As far as Dartmoor is concerned, um, yeah. no, probably not. I think a lot of the time we've there is evidence that we can't see so easily. Yeah. Um, for example, I mean, for example, we do have hill forts around the fringes of Dartmoor, which are sure. of Iron Age age. age. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. we have to bear in mind that studies are constantly changing our ideas of... Uh, things like ceramics, um, for example. Yes. We have excavated a relative few of our hut circles and Bronze Age settlements, certainly in the last 30, well, 40, 50 years, if I'm generous, with modern methods. Um, mm. A lot more were done in the Victorian Edwardian period, but not to, not to modern standards. And all of those collections from that, particularly the earlier stuff, are still in the museums, unstudied. So we're not mm. entirely sure what what they contain um and sometimes it seems that um we are we look at we can see later iron age reoccupation of bronze yeah. age structures um uh, possibly oh, romano british too yeah um so there is activity happening on dartmoor but there isn't the extensive settlement we see as far as we can tell, in the Middle Bronze Age. There is also, there's a site called Gold Park on Shipley Common, which isn't, isn't far from Grimspound, um, where excavation was undertaken in, I think, the 80s um, by Alex Gibson. And he found that the roundhouses he were looking at were constructed in the Iron Age. Hmm. So uh-huh. we could be looking at a situation where many of the things we say are Middle Bronze Age actually aren't. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, the level of research is, um, have you got your head in your hands? <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yes, yes, we thought we understood, we don't. No, never think you understand. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So we also have evidence, um, again, from close to Sitterford, um well, actually at Sitterford, it was from peat, peat samples we, we took at Sitterford, um that show peaks in what we, what, what uh, the scientists who study this call NPPs or non-pollen polynomorphs. Um, oh, lovely. What that means right. is fungal spores. And usually ah. what they're, rather than pollen or something like that, they're fungal spores. And usually what they're looking at are fungal spores that grow on animal dung. So, or as they say, coprophilic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Poo-loving yes. Um, yeah. fungus. And what they tell you <laughs> is um, if you've got a lot of them, more than the background you've got a lot of animal poo around. Mm. And that generally is taken to mean you've got grazing animals over and above the natural oh, yeah. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we see yeah. that in the late Bronze Age. I can't remember the exact date, but it's somewhere around around 1000 BC. So are yeah. we seeing the use of the moor for grazing by communities yeah. who don't live on the moor, much as they did yeah. in, in the medieval period? 
you know, it, it's a good bet, um, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just not a lot of yeah. work has been done on those sorts of, um, yeah. that sort of evidence. You know, we only have a but few places where we've done that sort of work. But the sit of a stone circle could be the gift that keeps on giving, couldn't it? Because <laughs> it, the, the, it's, uh, I mean, for those that don't know, I'll, I'll be able to put a, an image or two up, but a uh, sit of a stone sc- circle is a stone circle. I mean, imagine one of the grey weather stone circles or something like that, but completely flattened uh, into this sort of clock face yeah. um, um, pattern. And uh, the... the what it seems to have happened these stones have fallen at different times so under each different stone you've got the record of uh, the time that that stone fell over so maybe in that clock face you've got a wonderful (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh, you know chronological uh deep dive through the whole of uh, dartmoor's uh, prehistory or a, lot, or a lot of it anyway yeah yeah (laughs) i mean it's a wonderful site because yeah um you know, everywhere in the country, pretty much every stone circle that we know about, many of which are famous, have been messed about with by subsequent yes. generations. Yeah. Sitterford mm-hmm. is an exception. It's been, it's been yeah. buried in the peat, so it hasn't been yeah. touched. Certainly not yeah. touched by the sort of Victorian Edwardians who like to put things up as they thought they should be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. Not as the evidence suggested always. Um, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't. I shouldn't rag them too much because we wouldn't know as much as we do, uh, and we wouldn't without, have as much as we have. And we wouldn't have as much either. as we do. No. Yeah. So, um, no, so, so Sitterford's a very important site. Uh, that's um, you know for for that reason. Um, mm. It's a strange one um, because mm. we couldn't find any sockets for the when we excavated a little bit there a few years ago. Okay. No sockets for the for the stones. So a jerry yeah, yeah. built stone circles just. Upright in the peat, perhaps. You Amazing. Know. Yeah. Okay. That is very interesting. I hope yeah. over this wow. uh, hour or so that we've given folk the impression that uh, although, as I said before, we look at it and we see the stone monuments, but that the prehistory and the history of Dartmoor stretches out vastly over time. Is there anything um, that you feel that we've missed out or any particular favourites or any little or any feeling that you have the secrets that uh, Dartmoor is still to to give up? Uh, You know, do you have a hunch or an inkling? How long have we got? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think there's... There are a lot of questions that are unanswered. I think Dartmoor, despite the richness of its of its archaeology, um, you know, just as a just a just to illustrate how how rich that is in England, mm. there are twenty thousand scheduled monuments, roughly. Yeah. Uh, on Dartmoor, we have over a thousand of them, so we have five percent of England's scheduled monuments in point seven percent of its area. So mm-hmm. the density of that materially is enormous and many yeah. much of that is prehistoric yeah. archaeology very yes. large amount a large proportion of it um so that gives you an idea of how how dense that is um questions that spring to my mind a lot are how early was the were the tin resources exploited what role did that play in yeah. in the wider world if you like um Fortunately for me, that's recently being addressed by a, a big project on ancient tin uh, being undertaken at Durham and Liverpool universities. They are looking at that question of how much did British tin contribute to a European Bronze Age? Ah, oh, great uh, question, yes. 
Largely, I think, from what I've read, uh, fairly new information to me, that because tin bronzes, as opposed to just using copper, emerge quite early in Britain, um, right. as opposed to what ah. was going on on the continent. So um, they are drawing on samples and metal artifacts from all over Europe and working with European mm. archaeologists on this question, which I hope will... And they've been doing an awful lot of sampling this year uh, over the summer you know, from our streams to find tin so they can chemically fingerprint some of this, this tin, or at least that's the idea. So hopefully that will... That yeah. will tell us. We have things like the um, the White Horse Hill tin that gives yeah. us a hint that something was happening, but um, yeah. how early that was happening and how important it was on a wider level is is a question I'd like like to see answered. Um, yeah. mm. I'd like to understand a little bit more about the Neolithic on Dartmoor. Um, mm. We're again another project I'm working on with um, Leicester University is looking at our, what we call tour enclosures. These in, which they're a Cornish phenomenon. We have two mm. well-known ones, at, at White Tor and a Dewarstone, which are these stone-built enclosures of surrounding tors and incorporating outcrops into their into their um, uh, yeah, circuits, yeah. if you like. Uh, they're Neolithic. They've been proven to be early Neolithic in Cornwall at Carnbray and Helmand Tor, the two there. Whether that's the same story here on Dartmoor and how they fit into this this narrative is a, is another. Another interesting one. And I'd also like to yeah. know more about the Mesolithic. And uh, as I said earlier, yeah. we know very, very little about it. Yeah. So yeah. that's just three off the mm. top, top of my head. Three questions yeah. that, that we really Indeed. could do with answering. Well, so, we look forward well, to, uh, yeah, what's going to come out in, in the future. And, uh, you know, I hope your questions uh, are answered. Rupert, that's all I've got. What Have you got anything to uh, ask? No, Lee? because the time it romps does. on and we just could talk. Because, <laughs> well, we love Dartmoor anyway. We could just talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, uh, no, all I'll say is when we next get down, because Mike and I are planning on making a film specifically about Dartmoor because it's just so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so we will make a point of uh, of dragging you out. Yes, no, that's that's fine. Any excuse, yeah. as long as it's not this cold. Um, no, we'll really. get out and have a look. Um, I've done I've done yes. a few myself that are nowhere near as professional as yours. They're only a few minutes long. That sometimes go up on our Facebook page of me wandering around, sometimes in the rain, looking at just they're raw. They're supposed to be raw. This I'm here today. Have a look at Great. this. That sort of thing. That's so, the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Quite. It is the way it should be done. Yeah. Yes. So um, <laughs> hopefully they're useful for people. Mm. But um, some of those are on prehistory. So you mm. know. Yes. No, it's for Lee. Thank you so much. Um, it's uh, it's it's so rich. As I said, you know, we could talk for hours. <laughs> um, um, we <laughs> we can't. Yeah. But there we are. No, just thanks again ever so much for, for giving us your time. And, uh, and we will. We'll make a point of getting out on the moor with yeah. you uh, when we can next get out and about. Yeah, yeah obviously. We'll go and look at something. Yeah, obviously this needs a supplemental. What uh, what better way? Yeah, so... Yeah, well, no, thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's been yeah, good. Yeah, remind us, remind us, uh, viewers, say, get out there. Get yeah. back on, on Dartmoor. Yeah. I expect your comments down below. <laughs> it's a wonderful part of the world, so, you know. 
Oh yeah, terrific. Well, we hope we've given people uh, that impression and uh, and um, you know uh, inspired a few people that may not have known so much about Dartmoor to uh, delve oh, more into it. Mm. So with yeah. that, we will say bye bye to you folks. Thanks for watching. Thanks Cheerio. for listening. And uh, to- see you soon. Okay. Bye. bye. bye.